Welcome to the Global Venturing Review Leadership Series, where we talk to thought leaders from the university and corporate venturing worlds to find out more about how they are changing the world. In today's episode, our Editor-in-Chief, James Mawson, talks to Mark Sherman, the Managing Director at Telstra Ventures. Mark Sherman, Telstra Ventures, can you just give a little bit of background about yourself and what you guys have been up to for, as a firm for the past couple of years? Yeah, so basically, I've been at Telstra Ventures now for eight and a half years, and drawing on my experience as a banker at Robertson and a venture capitalist at Battery Ventures, you know, what I love to do is identify great emerging technology companies early. And what we've done is built a platform to do that, but then we've joined it with the ability to generate revenue for our portfolio companies by doing revenue-bearing relationships. And so what we've been building is a platform to do that. And we've been very fortunate to be involved with some terrific companies such as Zero, Box, CrowdStrike, DocuSign, GitLab, UbiTech, and, and many others. More recently, uh, BigCommerce. And then basically link them to Telstra, who's a strategic investor in, our, in us, uh, and then also the Telstra channels. And so we've generated about a quarter of a billion dollars of revenue for our portfolio which is very good because it helps us understand what the revenue relationships are with these companies and, you know, are the dogs eating the dog food at a very simple level, but then also add value to the companies by generating revenue for them because most of the companies are early in their revenue cycles and they can then grow and scale more quickly by working with us. So does that make sense to you? I think in effect, you started as an in-house corporate venture capital unit for Telstra, hence Telstra Ventures. But then yep. you've actually sort of changed and you're now very much an independent global VC. You've had sort of you know, backing from Harbourvest, you raised a 500 million fund, I think back in 2018. You know, what was that shift like and how does it then work if Telstra's just an LP? Is it, are they one strategic among many or are they your only strategic LP? Yeah, so, so basically what we're doing has been pretty consistent just from the beginning. So we're always started by trying to find the best companies in the world. And, and we centered in on, you know, about two thirds or 70% of our portfolios in the U.S. A significant portion is in China, which are, you know, the number one and number two venture markets in the world. And then we also do investments in, in Australia and then, and then other parts of Asia. In terms of what we've been doing with, with Telstra, they're a very special partner of ours. And I think we'll always be a very special partner of ours. And, but we saw an opportunity about two years ago to essentially spin out of Telstra with the help of Harborvest, who essentially bought a little bit of Telstra's portfolio. And then Harborvest and Telstra actually contributed more capital so that we could continue to make the primary investments that we've been making always, and then also support our existing portfolio. And then subsequently, we've brought in a couple of other uh, Australian pension funds to continue to grow and scale our business. And so while there has been some movement in terms of the partnership with Harborvest and bringing in additional outside capital, the actual day-to-day has been incredibly business as usual. And so we're still focused on you know, early revenue companies, so typically Series B, Cs, and Ds. We're typically focused on sectors such as cloud, SaaS, security, networking, consumer, uh, and on down the list. And we're typically doing the same value add that we did beforehand that we're doing afterwards. So pretty much business as usual. And, and, you know, 
more recently, we've been involved with a number of IPOs, which has worked out, you know, very nicely for us. In terms of some of those IPOs, I think, you know, CrowdStrike and Big Commerce you just mentioned have had some IPOs. You know, have you got any others on there? And how are you viewing the different routes that seem to be particularly sort of popular now, whether to go via a SPAC or more of a direct listing or a private listing versus a more traditional IPO? How much so do you discuss with the portfolio companies the right option for them? And, you know, what do you think about it? Because there definitely does seem to be a very topical point at the moment there. Yeah. So, I mean, we've been involved with a number of IPOs in recent past. So Box, DocuSign, Snapchat, CrowdStrike, BigCommerce, and then Whisper in Australia on the ASX. The other guys all being US-based. In terms of the pluses and minuses, I think there's been a lot of you know new work here in terms of a traditional IPO process versus direct listing versus a SPAC. And each one has kind of different strengths and weaknesses. And so a traditional IPO process is sort of how people have done it historically. And you know, we'll probably continue to do it for a long period of time. You know, the the benefits are pretty obvious, but the the costs are People leave money on the table because oftentimes the IPOs uh, spike significantly in the first couple of days of trading. And so in, in the end, it's more costly from a, an issuer's perspective. And then it also takes six or seven months to work through the IPO process. So it's, it's definitely more lengthy. If you do not need to raise primary capital for the company, then pursuing a direct listing is something that, it, that you should consider. The time frame is still about six or seven months in terms of the cost of time, but in terms of the of the spike in the IPO price, because it's a market based pricing, there isn't as such a, a discount that you have to take that you need in a in a direct IPO process. And then also you can access more broadly the marketplace. So to the extent the problem with the traditional IPO process is oftentimes you're not looping in retail investors. Uh, in other types of investor bases, and it's almost largely institutional investors. And so you're not getting as broad distribution as you can. And so you, with the market-based pricing, you uh, leave less money on the table. And so that's the benefit of the direct uh, listing. Then lastly, and, and more recently, SPACs have become much more popular. And there are uh, over 100 SPACs that have raised over $30 billion just in the last year alone that have you know, become an, a more interesting marketplace and that many companies are, are considering. And the advantage of them is, is that the process is a little shorter. It may take three or four months. And you have the ability to negotiate with one party, the SPAC sponsor, as opposed to having to negotiate with a bank and then institutional investors in a, tra- in a traditional IPO process. And as such, the thought is, is that you can, uh, the cost of the spike on the first day of an IPO process will be significantly less for a SPAC. The SPAC also has an advantage over a direct listing in that if you do need to raise primary capital in a SPAC, you can either raise primary capital by the capital that the SPAC has has raised itself. And so when you merge, you get access to that primary capital. And then SPACs can also be partnered with a pipe, which is a uh, private investment in the public equity, and so that you can get additional primary capital into the company if it needs it. And so those are the three different choices. And, and we're basically, you know, I think every company that's considering an IPO process right now is looking through each of those. And then depending on the dynamics, we'll go through, you know, one process or another. 
Interesting. I find in night there's more interest in IPOs just because the stock price is a high, whether they choose a SPAC or a direct listing or a traditional IPO routes. You know, is it feel like there's more interest in an IPO because of the stock market valuation versus more of a traditional M&A? Obviously, you've had a, a great run of IPOs, but you've also done some M&A. You know, where's the sort of relative balance that you see it? You know, I think in the end, I think the public equity markets are very hot right now. And so between mid to late March to now, the equity markets are up over 40%. So, and you've just seen a recent filing of significant number of companies. I think this past Monday, in fact, was S1 Monday with Unity, Snowflake, Asana, Sumo, Logic, and there was somebody else that I'm forgetting, but there are five basically significant IPOs that were filed just this past Monday. Obviously, you know, Airbnb and, and Palantir have have filed recently and you're starting to get, you know, just a wave of IPOs that are being married with the the increased raise in in the uh, equity markets overall. And in terms of, you know, does a company think about M&A versus IPO? I think it really gets down to the specifics of the situation and you know, is there a broad market size that looks like it's going to continue for you know, years, if not decades, is, is sort of one consideration that would lead you to more of an IPO path. Is the management team, you know, capable and really wanting to run a public company is another, you know, consideration that, that fits into it. And then, you know, some companies, you know, have strategic interest, other companies have less strategic interest. And so if there is strategic interest, you know, what is the pricing of the strategic interest? And so I think it's been, you know, talked about many circles that, you know, oftentimes uh, some of the strategic buyers, you know, are willing to go so high for a certain price and the company can do better in the public markets. In other cases, you know, the strategic buyers, you know, are willing to pay more for this, the asset than the IPO markets, because it fits more neatly into their product suite or their channels or their customers, et cetera. So I think it's really hard to generalize about, you know, whether you should go down an IPO path or whether you go down an M&A path. But I think in I think you really have to look at the specifics of the situation based on the market size, the team, and what the strategic interest in the space would be the you know, primary three big factors. And then you mentioned before, obviously, it's pretty well much over the past couple of years, it's still been business as usual, despite the buyout effectively from, from Telstra to being more independent. But what about the actual portfolio that you're looking? You're obviously active in sort of China, the US, as well as more broadly in Asia. And I'm just wondering whether what you see as some of the hot sectors or technologies that are really exciting and, you know, how much do you think that they're excited and how much do you still keep half an eye on Telstra as potentially being that strategic customer in some ways? Yeah, so, I mean, we, we always keep an eye on what is in the interest of Telstra and its customers. But I think in the end, one of the roles that we can play is think about where the world is going and where we think the coolest, most interesting companies are in the world, and then start socializing them with Telstra, start socializing them with, with the Telstra customers. And sometimes, you know, the fit may not be perfect in, you know, interaction one, but, you know, six months or 12 months or 18 months or 24 months later, you know, oftentimes, you know, the interest grows as, as the company develops more capabilities, more customer wins, more product features and functionality, et cetera ultimately lead to uh, some good interaction. But, you know, taking a step back in terms of the areas that we're, you know, interested in, earlier I gave you sort of the general neighborhoods of cloud and SaaS and security and networking and consumer. In each of those, we really have hyper-specialized investment themes in each of those areas that we're very excited about. 
So Kubernetes uh, in cloud, Kubernetes orchestration is an area that we've been spending a lot of time in and invested in a company called Rancher in February. And then Rancher in July announced that it was getting acquired by SUS. So that looks like it's worked out well for us. But we think that it's a, a very fundamental trend and will continue to generate new companies and new companies of interest. Secondly, cyber is an area that just continues to generate a ton of areas of interest for us. And we've made a dozen investments in that, that area, including CrowdStrike and AuthZero, CyberGRX, Attack IQs, Imperium, and, and on down the list. And we've recently made an investment in that space in a least permissions privileged authorization platform called CloudNox, which we're quite high on. It's a guy out of a VMware who's very good at thinking about privileges around either on-premise security as well as <clears throat> security in the cloud for AWS, Google, or Azure, and basically giving very fine-grained provisioning between James and Jenna and Mark, the different provisioning they can have. And then the other area we've been quite successful in is around sports and esports. So we've made an investment in a competitive gaming company called Skills, which is doing very well. We've invested in a esports team called TSM, which is doing very well. We've invested in a, a sports-related wagering platform, which is an API called Swish Analytics, which is doing very nicely. So sports has been a huge theme for us and has worked out quite well in, in our consumer portfolio. And then, you know, I would say we're also looking at other emerging areas. So the last area that I would probably highlight is EdTech is, a, is an investment that we've made recently in a company called Springboard. And the twist that they have is around bringing mentors to lots of students in both data science and the digital arts. So they have online education platform and the students spend a significant majority of their time in, in the online portion, but then they work on projects and build a portfolio with a mentor. And those mentors can come from global 500 companies that are, you know, like have lighthouse data science groups. And, you know, there are lots of people who really like the activity of mentoring and really like it. Some people do it to improve and hone their own skills. Some people do it to just hire new recruits. And, you know, the thing that's been amazing about Springboard is, is that they have incredible outcomes in terms of their placement and the amount of increase in salary that their students get relative to how much the course costs. So the company is doing great. It's way ahead of plan. And, you know, we just made this investment back in uh, uh, May, June of this past year, and we're very excited about its, its, its outlook. Great areas to be involved in, Mark. And uh, certainly the sort of Kubernetes, you know, you know, the sort of container ship analogy, if you can get those sort of packages to work, it, it should be as powerful in the digital world as container ships have been for logistics, I suppose. It's a great space to be in. So Yeah, exactly. It makes the movement of workloads more efficient, both in the container and the physical container world, as well as the compute container world. <laughs> Double winner. And then I, I remember a report that you and Albert did a few years ago on sort of what you called, I think, strategic growth investors. And this was very much, it seemed, uh, slightly ahead of the curve in some ways about this idea that what was great around corporates was this strategic value add that they could bring to the portfolio companies. But what was great about VCs was that obviously their financial discipline and the ability to deliver sort of return on investments. And very much Telstra Ventures has been sort of a forerunner of what I consider to be that, that sort of great area. And you had a report, I think, which said that by 2025, it would maybe be somewhere in the order of about, what, 30, 35% of sort of the venture market would be in these strategic growth investors. 
I'm just wondering now, a few years on from that report, whether you feel that actually, given you know where we currently are and the sort of focus in terms of fundraising going to the bigger, better investors anyway, the consolidation that's happening, you know, whether you feel that you're ahead of that curve to, to deliver before 2025 or what you think around the sort of global venture investing market more broadly in some of those trends that you were identified back then? Yeah, I mean, I think the key thought was that the venture market overall was changing. And I think that the historically traditional venture firms had had a lot of strengths in terms of governance and, and raising capital and investing in, in emerging companies. And that the corporates historically had, you know, some assets to provide, but were still kind of becoming better and more fluid in terms of their interactions with the, uh, with the emerging companies. And I think what our thesis was, was regardless of whether you were a traditional venture firm or a corporate, you really needed to have some differentiation or some value add that you're going to be bringing to the companies. And that's going to be critical going forward. And, you know, we believe that as much as we when we wrote the report then as we do now. And we just think that it's going to continue on. And I think, you know, from from our perspective, what we identified is this opportunity of a large corporate corporates and corporate customers such as Telstra and its customers really have a thirst for innovation and really want to try to find the new and interesting security platforms, cloud platforms, et cetera, that will help add differentiation and value to their business. More that the companies really want revenue. And so if we can act as a go-between there where we basically filter all the companies in different spaces, and so our corporate customers know that we really have filtered through the best of the breed of the companies in that space and can introduce them to you know, great emerging companies. And then on the flip side, you know, the, the younger companies are always trying to find what's the best avenue to penetrate you know, large but innovative IT buyers. If we can cross those, those trades, essentially, it will be good for, for both. And, and thus far, it's worked out quite well. You know, but I think if, if we're thinking more broadly, you know, the venture firms themselves have added recruiting capabilities, they've added conferences, they've added marketing capabilities, they've added a lot of different things. The, the corporates have added you know, conferences in some cases, they've added product integration support in some cases. And so I think in the end, what you need to do is just pick a lane and go very hard on that lane to try to add value to the, to the companies. And in the end, that will add value to the ecosystem and add differentiation to the different platforms along the way. Does that make sense? Totally, Mark. Well, actually, we've used your paper as a strategic roadmap for ourselves, actually. So obviously, as Global Corporate Venture, we help the corporate community, but then we help the sort of VCs help to connect with the corporates as, you know, if not an LP, you know, potential partners in that way. So we have something called Global Innovation Venturing, which is effectively a meta-level sort of community or network. So the top 50 VCs can talk to the top 150 or so corporate VCs. So you know, we'd love to engage you more with that, Mark, on that side of things, because certainly that paper was uh, was a sort of lightning bolt moment for us here at Global Corporate Venture. Great. Well, thanks so much. And and look, I think I think there's more to do. I, I think that there's a lot of interesting angles in terms of where the industry can go. You know, we'd love to kind of brainstorm more of those ideas with you uh, downstream. Yeah, wonderful. Well, Mark Sherman, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, great to catch up. And so, so it's been so long since we have done so. Hey, we'll make it. We'll make it sooner next time. James, great to be with you, and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Great.
Global Venturing Review was produced by In-Ear Production. You can find out more by going to inearproduction.com.